whatever you think of it um, is something that reflects nature, reflects people. People, people want meaning, people want purpose. And this is an age-old search. This is something that has spans the, the, from the beginning of time. Uh, and people want relationship, relationship to the world around us, relationship to other people. It looks different from generation to generation, culture to culture, but the search is the same. The search for meaning, the search for purpose, and the search for relationship. Genesis is written to provide answers to this search. Uh, God has saved the people uh, of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And the Israelites want to know their place in the world. Uh, Last week we saw that Genesis 1 reveals to us this God, this creator God, who gives order and purpose simply by speaking uh, creation into existence. Uh, We see a God that creates man as the masterpiece, as the centerpiece of his creation. Uh, And in Genesis 1, we have this big picture of God. As we come to Genesis 2, it zooms in. It zooms in on creation, it zooms in on God, and it gives us a different perspective. It doesn't answer the question how. We we come and we read this and we're like, how do these things work? How? Uh, But it doesn't answer that question. Instead, it answers the question of who is God and who am I? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, as we come to hear you speak, we ask that you would do so. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would uh, come now, that you would reveal to us the things of God, that you would speak to our hearts and that you might write and impress them upon us. Father, I ask that you would speak, that I would diminish, that you would take centre stage and speak to your people. Amen. We're going to start in verse 4. We'll come back to verse 1 to 3 later. These are the generations. As you read through Genesis, this is like a bookmark. It is a division of uh, the the story of Genesis. um, And it just tells the various stages of the story. And it talks about the various families, the various characters throughout the story of Genesis. So as you read through Genesis, keep an eye out for that. Uh, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So here we are looking at creation. And again, in Genesis 1 we're introduced to the character of God, but here we are introduced to another aspect of God. This is the Lord God. So in Genesis 1 we have God. In the beginning, God. In Genesis 2 we have the Lord God, you see that in verse 4. And I just want to stop here um, to ex- just talk through this a little bit. Chapter 1, we see God. We see Elohim. His name is Elohim. The creator God who exists before time and space and creates things by his powerful word. Um, and none of the ancient gods could compare to him. But here we have the Lord God in our English Bibles. You see it capitalised there. This is Yahweh Elohim. That's his name. And it is easy for us, if you've been a Christian and you've read through the Bible, it's easy to gloss over this. But this name, the Lord God, is something special. It represents something of the character of God. Um, Exodus chapter 3, Moses uh, meets God at the burning bush. And God calls him 
to go save the Israelites from slavery. And Moses says to God, when they ask who sends you, who sent you, who do I tell them you are? And God gives him the response, tell them that I am who I am. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And as you read through the story of Israel, God reveals himself to his people and enters into this covenant, this special relationship with them. And this name, the Lord, Yahweh, reflects his relationship that he has with people. It reflects his constant pursuit of people, despite the fact that they turn his back. Uh, They turn their back on him. And so here in Genesis 2, we have this picture of the Lord God, not just the God of creation, but the Lord who enters into relationship with his people. Verse 5. Here we have this picture, verse 5 and 6, where there is no bush, there are no plants, um, and we're told because there was no one to work the ground. In verse 6 we have this hint of sustenance, that there is a spring or mist that waters the land. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the dust, man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so in this empty space where there are no plants, there's no shrubs, there's just essentially just dust. That's the picture that we have here. In the midst of this, we have this picture of God coming down to earth, coming down and with his hands forming. This word form is this picture of a pot of forming clay. And we have this picture of God coming, the Lord God coming and forming man out of the dust of the ground. In Genesis 1 we see God and he creates man in his image, but here we suddenly have this picture of God coming down and out of the dust, shaping and forming the bridge of your nose, the holes in your nostrils, the wrinkles on your skin. We have God coming down and he's shaping each and every little detail of a person, of man. This is God. The Lord God, God of creation who speaks everything into existence just with his word. And when he creates man, he comes. He comes down and he, and he shapes every little detail. The psalmist David uh, expresses it in Psalm 9 like this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well. My frame, my body was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God intimately interacts with his creation, with people. Just let that sink in. Verse 8. God not only creates man, but he places him in the Garden of Eden. Eden means delight or pleasure. God places him in this Garden of Pleasure and Delight, And 
He provides for him. We see that in Genesis 1. God provides uh, with uh, trees, fruit, plants. Uh, he provides food. And so here, as you look through verses 9 to 14, is this picture of delight, this picture of pleasure, this picture of richness. God provides for his people. Uh, you see there that there are two trees that God creates and we're going to touch on them next week, so don't ask about it now. Uh, but in this picture, God provides. He doesn't just give you KFC, he doesn't just give you McDonald's, he gives you Michelin star food. He provides the best that is there. You read through 10 verses 10 to 14, it is this picture of a land that is overflowing with richness. And God puts man in the midst of that. God puts man in the midst of delight and pleasure. I talked about the ancient gods last week. The ancient gods created man for their own benefit. They created them for man to, to benefit them, to do their work because they were too lazy to do it. But here God goes through all the effort to provide for man. Not man to provide for God. Man, God provides for man. The Lord God provides for man and he provides in abundance. Uh, this, this place is so beautiful, this place is so rich that in chapter 3 we see God himself walking through this garden and delighting in it. God himself thinks that it's beautiful and he walks through it. And so that's the picture that we have here. But this garden is also good because we are given work. Verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. This is why there was no garden in the first place, because nothing had grown and no one was there to keep it. Verse 5 and 6. But God here, in the midst of placing man in the garden of delight and pleasure, gives him work. Now, I don't know what you think about work, but that's probably the furthest thing from my mind when I think of delight and pleasure. I don't think of work as being something that I enjoy. But here in this picture, God places man in a garden which is rich, which is full of delight and pleasure, and he gives him work. And work in God's perfect plan is something to be enjoyed, something that is good, that is for our benefit and the benefit of his creation. We go back to uh, chapter 1 and we see God gives man that's our work. And here in this garden, there's no bad days, there's no technical failures, there's no difficult people to deal with. This is perfect. This is good work. And that's what God gives to us. Here I'm going to jump back to verse 1 and 3. God gives us work, but he also gives us rest. He gives us rest. When God created the heavens and earth, after all of that was done, he gives, he, he himself rests. And as we are image of God, we are to rest. God makes this such a big deal that he blesses this day and makes it holy. He sets it apart from the rest of the week. That's what holy means, to set it apart. We're not made to work seven days a week. That's not how we're made to work. Now, I love seven-day shopping hours. I love long shopping hours because it's convenient and it benefits me. 
but really that's not a good thing. I'm, I'm just calling out my sin. That's not a good thing. That's not how we're meant to be. We are given work to do, but then we are meant to rest. And just like God, when he creates and then rests, it is a rest of accomplishment. It is a rest of achievement. It's not a rest that is born out of inactivity and boredom. It is a rest that is born out of accomplishing something. God creates and he finishes his creation and then he rests. And same as we work, when we achieve and accomplish our work, we rest. And God gives us that rest. Verse 16 and 17, just quickly, God gives man a command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. I don't want to talk too much about it because we're going to talk more about it next week, but I do want to say this. God gives a command. In the midst of his perfect creation, God gives a command, and by giving a command, what he does is give man, give people, He creates us different from the rest of creation in that we have choice. We have ability to make decisions about what is right and what is wrong, obey or disobey. We see that come in here. We're going to talk about that more next week and how that plays out. But just keep that in mind. God gives us a command and we are given then the choice to obey or disobey. We're not robots. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is... Not good that the man should be alone. Not good. Keep that in mind. Go back to Genesis 1 and he creates day one. He creates light. He creates uh, the world. He creates everything. And as he goes on through creation, it is good. 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 Six times it is good. And then he creates man. It is very good. And all of a sudden here, God has made man. He is in the garden and it is not good. Suddenly we have this aspect of life that is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, notice this is God himself recognizing this. This isn't coming to him saying, I'm a little lonely, I need something. No, God himself is a relationship who recognizes that it is not good for man to be alone. Alone. So what does God do? Verse 19, God creates animals. God forms out of the ground animals. What do you do when someone's lonely? You buy them a pet. That'll help. God makes animals for man. And he gives animals to the man and the man gives them, name, uh, gives them names. This is man's work, to name things. I don't know what you think about scientific names. They're long, convoluted and no sense unless you know Latin. But that is man's work, to name things. That is what God does in creation. He names the light, he names the darkness, he names the land, the sea, the stars, the moon. That is man's work. We are reflecting the image of God when we give things names. We give our children's, uh, our own children names. We give nicknames to our friends. This is something that is born in people, that we give things names. That is the image of God in us. All of this, verse 20, end of verse 20, but for the man there was no, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
after naming all the animals, they weren't good enough for man. Pets are great, don't get me wrong, but please don't get a pet. Lonely person. When people are lonely, they need people. Don't get them a pet. And recognizing this, verse 21, God tries something else. Now, this is an afterthought. This is not an afterthought. God has made the animals, he's given animals to man to demonstrate that it is not enough. Animals are not enough to, to deal with the issue of loneliness. And so God here does something. He creates a suitable helper for man. He puts the man into a deep sleep. He gives him a good dose of sleeping gas and grabs a chunk of his flesh from his side. Not just the rib, he grabs a chunk and bone out of his side, creates a woman and brings her to the man. And the man says in verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is flesh and bones, taken out of the sign of man. Why the sign? Why did God take out of the side? God didn't take it out of the head because woman is not more important than man. God didn't take a piece of his leg or his foot because woman is not less than man. No, woman is taken out of the side of man because woman stands side by side with man and is equal. Equal in essence. Equal in God's image. And so here God shows, the Lord God shows that woman is a suitable for man. She is suitable. That's to say that she is able to contribute significantly and distinctively to life. Animals cannot do that. Animals cannot contribute anything significant and distinctive to life. God tried that. It didn't work. But here, woman is able to be suitable. And she's not only suitable, she's a helper, not a servant. God himself is described as a helper for Israel, for God's people. God's nobody's servant. And so, yes, there are differences between man and woman. That's not the point here. The point is that woman is made in God's image and is man's equal. We'll address the differences another time. Verse 4. Here we see the principle of a special relationship between a man and a woman where a man leaves his parents, he holds fast or sticks to his wife, and they become one speaks of marriage. But I want to say a few things here. I want to say three things uh, and we'll go on a little bit of a tangent here. But I want to say three things. Uh, Firstly, marriage is separation from parental priority. Secondly, marriage is a covenant, a commitment between a man and a woman. And lastly, marriage is not an end goal. Let me explain each one of those things. Firstly, marriage is a separation from parental priority. Before you're married, your primary priority in human relationships is your parents. As a child, your priority is your parents. You have, you have siblings, friends, but your primary priority in 
Parents, when you get married, that changes. Uh, the priority now goes to your husband or wife. Now, that doesn't mean that parents don't matter. That's not what it's saying here. It's simply saying that the order of priority has changed. When a couple, um, when a man and woman are married, the order of priority changes. Now, this is countercultural to the Israelites' day, countercultural today, but the order of priority is different. Parents are still a big deal. I want to make that extremely clear. Parents are still a big deal. You read through the Bible and it's extremely clear that God values parents. In the Old Testament, we are given the commandment to honour your parents. It's the only commandment with a promise, uh, with, uh, with a blessing. There is the promise of long life for those who honour their parents. Uh, to hit your parents, to curse them was a death sentence. God does not take abuse of, the, of parents lightly. Parents are still a big deal. The issue here is one of priority. The husband and wife gets first priority, then the parents. And marriage is a covenant, it's a union, it's when two people become one. And when two, when, when two things become one and it is considered a unit, when you separate it, it doesn't become two, it becomes a half. It's not whole. Life is not like Lego pieces that you put together and then take apart when you feel like it. No, this is life. And so when, when divorce happens, when all of this stuff happens, it breaks God's heart. It hurts. It hurts. That's not God's intention. And we need to recognize that it hurts. It's a big deal. Lastly, marriage is not an end goal. We're just going to take a bit of a tangent here. Let me unpack this. The whole reason that God created woman in the first place was because it was not good for man to be alone. But marriage does not solve loneliness. Marriage does not solve loneliness. Marriage can be terribly lonely. And I can tell you plenty of stories of people who are in marriages but are completely and utterly alone. Marriage does not solve loneliness. I entered to this last week, but the whole point of Genesis, the main idea, the main theme is seen in Genesis 12. Uh, Genesis 12, God uh, calls to himself a man, Abraham, uh, and he makes a covenant with him, enters into a special relationship with him. He enters into covenant with him. And he says to him, I will make of you a great name. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the overarching purpose of Genesis. God who creates man and woman creates them in relationship. 
marriage, yes, but relationship within the context here of a nation, of a community. God creates man and woman, he creates people to be in relationship in community. And marriages are just a, one unit of that community. And I think in recent times, our failure and, dare I say, our sin, both married and single, is that we have overemphasized marriage and made it an idol. It's one thing for the world to after marriage, after love, but within the church, within the body of Christ, within the community of God, we have made marriage. The world is obsessed with it. I mean, this is why shows, uh, these reality TV shows exist, where random strangers get married. The irony of all of that is that it's selfish. That version of marriage, this picture of marriage is selfish. It's not selfish in the sense of greed, but it's selfish in the sense that it, a person tries to derive or gain some sort of identity or purpose from marriage. It's, it becomes the goal to achieve my dream of being married, of being loved. It becomes a status symbol, a relationship status that gets changed on Facebook to show the world that I'm there. In addition to idolizing marriage, you idolize yourself. That's what that is all about. It is seeking my pleasure, my goals, my desires, my dreams. Now, of course, in the church, we don't, we're not like that, are we? Now, we, we hold to a traditional value of marriage where it's a place for raising children and loving my husband and wife. And so we're are so busy because uh, the parents are working through the week. The weekend is reserved for family time. The happiness and success of my family comes before anything else to the exclusion of all others. And so everything is about my children. Everything is about my partner, my husband or wife. is turned into the idol. No, God, the Lord God creates people for relationship in family, marriage is... God calls Abraham into special relationship. Christians are called into special relationship with Jesus Christ. And just as Abraham was called to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, Christians are called to be a blessing to all the families of the earth also. You jump to Ephesians 5 and Paul talks about marriage there and he talks about it in a very different way to the way we often talk about it. He talks about it as an earthly demonstration of the sacrificial love of Jesus for his church, for the body. His this love is meant to be this glorious demonstration, this glorious declaration of Jesus' sacrificial love cross to take away the sins of the world. And so marriage is not an end goal. 
Jesus himself says there's no marriage in heaven. Well, why are we making such a big deal out of it if there's no eternal significance? No, marriage is just one aspect of earthly Christian community. It's just one aspect. It's not the whole picture. We are all created for relationship. Male and female, young and old, child, parent, single, married, divorced, all created for relationship. And we are created to be a blessing in relationship to others, not just to ourselves and our family, but to others. Male to female, to male, young to old, old to young, child to parent, parent to child, single to married, to single, and so on. Brothers and sisters in Christ, even in marriage. In marriage, first and foremost, before we are husband and wife, we are brother and sisters in Christ. Get that right first. We are first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ to each other. Of that, in marriage, in our relationships, as a community, as a church, that overflows that we might be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, I'm not saying we get this right. We get this wrong all the time. But this is where God wants us to be. This is why God creates us and the purpose that he has given us. So let's stop idolizing marriage and putting it on a pedestal. Let's walk through life together as a community, as the people of God, to be a blessing to one another, to our families and friends, to our city and to the world. Verse 25. We have this simple conclusion to all of these things. People are happy. They're content. Man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Everything was right. Everything was good. But that's not the end of the story. And we'll look at that more next week. We are made for relationship. We are made for relationship with the Lord God. Not just some distant God who created the universe and wants nothing to do with us. No, we are created for relationship with the Lord God who comes down to earth and shapes us. Covenants who enters into special relationship with his people. We are made with a purpose. We are made to work. We are made to make choices, to care and keep God's creation. We are made for relationship in community with one another. Male and female, young and old, child, parent, single, married, divorced, widowed. We are all made for relationship in community. And lastly, we are made to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as people who don't always get it right. But we come to you knowing that you are not just God, but you are the Lord God who enters into relationship with us.
Help us as we think through all of these things, what it means to be created by you, in your image, with purpose, and to be a blessing to those around us. Help us as we do that. Enable us, equip us, challenge us, stretch us. And so we give these things to you and ask that you would do that in us and through us for your glory and your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.